This is Cognation, the podcast about cognitive psychology, neuroscience, philosophy, technology, the future of the human experience, and other stuff we like. It's hosted by me, Joe Hardy. And by me, Rolf Nelson. Welcome to the show. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about a paper called Is Clinical Virtual Reality Ready for Primetime? by Albert Skip Rizzo and Sebastian Koenig. This is a paper that talks about the use of virtual reality technologies for clinical psychology applications and uh, something that I think hits on a number of pretty interesting points related to what is VR, what, how does it work, what's working well, not working well with it, and how might it be useful in the world. Skip Rizzo is someone who has been working on this topic for a long time and has a lot of experience in developing practical applications of virtual reality and is one of the leaders in the field. And I think it brings up a, a number of, of interesting points related to how virtual reality might be helpful and, and some of the potential downfalls as well. Yeah, I thought this was a really nice paper. I enjoyed some of the depth that this brings to the idea. To what extent can we use virtual reality as a tool that's really going to augment the life of a clinical psychologist? And, you know, the first thing that I thought before considering a whole lot about the use of virtual reality in clinical practice is one of the obvious applications for this is in treating fears or phobias. It makes a lot of sense because the two main methods for treating phobias are gradually exposing someone to a more and more realistic version of that thing, so systematic desensitization, or the other, maybe a little harsher version, flooding, where you get an immediate, complete exposure to uh, something that you have a fear of. So with systematic desensitization, it's say if you're scared of snakes, you start out with the word snake, then you move on to, you know, a drawing of a snake, then a picture of a snake, and eventually you, you know, as you get comfortable with that, you are able to encounter a snake, maybe even touch a snake. So that's systematic desensitization. And then flooding is the immersion into it. Uh, so if you're scared of snakes and you're claustrophobic, the first thing you do is get locked into a trunk with a whole nest of snakes. Right, which scares the crap out of you, but then it, you find out you're not actually harmed, and the idea is that it's a fast way of doing it. Anyway, virtual reality seems like the perfect tool for these kinds of things because it represents something that you can safely explore and get exposed to, whether it's a slow, progressively more realistic version of what you're scared of, or it's an immediate flooding. You can you can get this more realistically and more safely, and you can do this in a regimented sort of way. So that makes perfect sense. And that's, I guess, what I would have thought that virtual reality would be good for. But I think he points that he gives a lot of other things that it can be effective in and really makes a good case that virtual reality therapy is qualitatively different than other, say, just watching something on a video or interacting with a with a computer program. So that's where I came into it, I, and, and I enjoyed it from that perspective. Yeah, I think it, it sort of speaks to this topic of, you know, what is virtual reality good for? And I think one of the things that when you think about systematic desensitization or flooding uh, for treating, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder or any kind of phobia, is that you can safely explore environments that you would not otherwise be able to safely explore. So, you know, it works in that world. And I think it also, the same for the, exactly the same reason, another important use of, of the technology is in, in like flight simulators, which uh, they bring up quite a bit in the article. Uh, you know, flight simulators are is a situation where if you're flying a plane and you get it wrong, that's a high-risk situation, uh, and it's difficult to fly a plane for the first time, right? Yeah. The first time you fly a plane can be a very risky situation. So the advent of flight simulators, yeah. you know, that are highly realistic uh, helps you kind of get into the, 
into the interaction in a safe way. Yeah, actually, so I know that you've done some flying before. Have you used, did you use flight simulators to, to start on that? No, I didn't. I, I, I started, I, I, I did use a flight simulator on like the Atari when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> Those are amazing games. It kind of gets to this idea that basically VR is just like a really good video game, right? Mm-hmm. Or it affords the opportunity to just create really good video games. And so the question becomes, how important is the VR aspect of it versus just a, a regular video game? And then why is it that you, you, know, you want to be using a video simulation or, or a simulation, digital simulation, rather than doing the real thing? What, what are the reasons why it would be advantageous to have a simulation versus you know, doing the real thing? Yeah, and certainly one of these is sort of as, as you describe, you can't, this is a, it's an analog of something that you could do in the real world, but it's just a dangerous thing to do in the real world. So flying an airplane, but you can also, in a video game, since you're not limited by the physics of the real world, you can fly like Superman or you can, you know, you can shoot lightning out of your hands. There's no essential limitation to what it is that you can do. If you want to get out your anger, you can stomp around on a city like Godzilla. It doesn't have to be tied to reality, I suppose. No, it doesn't. And I, I, I think that's where they kind of get into some interesting topics with regards to, you know, the idea of there's some ethical issues that you run into in the clinical application of virtual reality. Yeah, where, go into that. Where, you know, it speaks to the issues around systematic desensitization and flooding more broadly, which is that sometimes you can actually trigger some pretty negative reactions in people if you expose them to these situations that, that are fear-inducing. And it can cause some pretty pretty bad reactions in, in certain situations. And the thought is that, you know, if it's in a, in a properly controlled clinical setting, that, you know, that can be controlled for. But I think that's a little bit controversial in general. And the risk then is that if people are able to do this on their own, hmm. You know, with technology, that it could cause, it could it could be damaging as well as as helpful. So there's some- yeah, and there is. I think there is. A, he talks a reasonable amount about how this should be a tool for therapists rather than a self help kind of thing, where you can just download it like a game and say, okay, I'll go through the I'll go through the systematic desensitization program myself. I'll just get it on Steam and I'll cure myself of a phobia. So doing that, doing that without the guidance of a an actual trained therapist could cause some serious damage. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so, so there's a big question about in my mind about how effective the actual underlying treatments are to begin with. So obviously, you know, virtual reality might help, but it's only going to help if the fundamental underlying treatment modality is effective to begin with. Yeah. Right, so if, if systematic desensitization is not effective uh, as a tool, then it's not going to it's not going to help you. It might be worth thinking a little bit about what that actually might look like, what that might be like for a patient. So, uh, do you want to? I guess just imagine it a little bit. So I, I was just thinking to a, a lecture that we saw that I saw with uh, with Skip Rizzo a number of years ago, where he was talking about treating post-traumatic stress disorder in soldiers coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And basically, he would set up a situation, a war fighting situation, for example, like a, a city in, you know, say Iraq, and the, the soldier would be able to explore the environment and approach whatever situation it was that caused his trauma Mm-hmm. or her trauma, and you know, explore that in a safe way and be gradually exposed to it you know, under circumstances where they're... I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> As I say it out loud, it sounds like a bad idea, honestly. Right. But uh, I think that's basically what they're doing. Maybe they're doing some... Well, I guess, I mean, maybe one of the ideas is that you can 
stop it at any time. Right. So in other words, you can, if the therapist is looking along and going in as a partner to the, to the soldier, that as soon as things start looking like they might be triggering something, then you can stop it and use that as a, okay, so why did this happen? How can this be redirected in some different sort of a way? And maybe understanding specifically what kinds of things are triggering it. And, and I guess that makes some sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it does make some sense if you can, yeah, just become habituated to it. That's the idea, right? You have this recurrent thought mm -hmm. that you're sort of reliving this experience and it's anxiety producing and you have actively trying to inhibit the thought and that's causing more cognitive load and anxiety. And if you can just habituate to that, then it can be less triggering in the future, perhaps. Yeah, and particularly if there's no negative consequence associated with it, that it's, a, it's in a supportive setting, I suppose, and when it, when it gets triggered, you don't have that negative consequence afterwards, and repeated, then you just sort of reduce the amount of trauma that it could cause. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, you know, from that perspective, you can think about how important is it that it is virtual reality probably makes sense to talk a little bit about what virtual reality is in, in the context of this discussion uh, you know according to the authors they talk they mention the fact that virtual reality could be it's basically anything where there's some technology that's that's simulating reality so it doesn't have to be a particular technology but Typically now nowadays means that you're wearing those glasses, the head-mounted uh, displays, the head-mounted head-mounted displays, where you've got some stereoscopic input, you've got input to both eyes that is simulating a 3D environment, and everything else is blocked out. That's the other key thing: is that you're occluded from your actual immediate environment. I think mm -hmm. that's a, that's an important part. And you can also uh, add in auditory cues, et cetera. I like that. So when I when I think of VR, usually what I immediately think of is it's sort of a sensory substitution that you're overriding any kind of sensations that you're getting from the environment by something that's that just gives you an immersive experience in vision or hearing. But one of the things that I liked about the way that this paper talks about this is they say VR can be seen as an advanced form of human-computer interaction that allows a user to more naturally interact with computers beyond what's typically afforded with standard mouse and keyboard interface devices. So in that way, it's it's not thinking about it as a, a way to feed perception. It's a way of it's more a way of interaction. So you might think of watching a movie in VR. That doesn't really describe VR, according to this article, because there's not that sort of interaction. So key key to this is that a person is able to interact with a particular program and more easily plug into the program. I guess in a way it's sort of like you know getting a little closer to the matrix where they can operate in a computer system. Yeah, I think yeah one of the key things there is probably being able to turn your head, and when you turn your head the environment moves as though you were in that environment. Yeah. Unlike if you were playing a, a console video game and you're looking at a TV screen, as you turn your head, obviously the, the image on the screen doesn't change. You have to move your avatar using your joystick or whatever to have the environment change. And it's just a level of human-computer interface interactivity that is the next level up in being realistic and immersive. Yeah, that the movements of your of your body are an input to the computer. Yeah, and so I think at the at the uh, at the extreme uh, of the matrix, you're basically stepping. You're putting on this technology, putting on this head-mounted display, and you're essentially stepping into this virtual world where it's completely cannot be distinguished from reality. You can be completely confused 
you can completely suspend your disbelief that you're actually in that world. That would be that would be the ultimate of virtual reality. And that's Descartes' brain in a vat scenario, where you really cannot distinguish what is part of the actual world and what's just in your mind. And that went, and there you go into some philosophy, I suppose, or philosophers have talked about that the most. And it should probably be clear that VR as it exists right now is nowhere near that point. Um, Absolutely nowhere near that point. No, I mean, you put on the, the VR glasses and you're very aware that you're playing a video game. The, the overwhelming experience is that of trying to get used to this very odd sensory input. And you can become immersed in it, but it, I mean, it is in the same way that you can become immersed in watching a movie. So you can really feel a connection with the thing that you're seeing on the screen, and that can come through narrative or it can come through you know, good visual effects, something like that, and you just get more of that. What you're really adding with the head-mounted displays is just stereoscopic vision and an immersive, really an immersive field of vision and maybe some more immersive audio too. But you're not getting a, in any way a complete perceptual substitution for a virtual world. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's interesting too. I think a lot of the, uh, a lot of the hang-up is, is related to this stereoscopic display. The idea that you're trying to get two different views on the world into your two eyes. So mm-hmm. that it's more like being in the quote unquote real world. I, I, I always, I get hung up on this because I don't have very good stereoscopic vision myself. I have mm-hmm. kind of like a pretty amblyopic right eye. So it doesn't really work for me very well. Any, any kind of stereoscopic stuff generally I can, I can do it. It's not like I don't have stereoscopic vision, but it doesn't add much for me. And nevertheless, I walk around the world and it's perfectly 3D all the time. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it should be sort of stated as a caveat that we both study vision and psychology. So this is an area that we're both pretty familiar with. I think part of the point here is that your sense of immersion in the world comes from all kinds of different things. And stereoscopic vision, just seeing from two different eyes, is only one of the many, many, many cues that you get. Motion around the world is certainly one. And Yeah, that's this, where, you know, being able to turn your head and have the world turn, that seems to me like probably like the biggest like key element to have it be immersive. Yeah, that is a big one. I think as, as that gets better and better, uh, and as the models get better, and as especially as the, the lag is reduced and you can more the, as it's more real time as you move, you really see the world move as it should. I think that probably helps make make it more realistic. I don't know if this is a good time for that kind of di- digression, but I think it's also worth thinking about what some of the issues with the technology are as it exists right now. And one of the issues is you don't get input from all of your senses, so you're not you know you're not interacting with your whole body or you're not getting feedback from your whole body. So it's not yet a holodeck experience. Even within vision and stereoscopic vision, there are a couple things and people that get headaches when they put on a VR headset know this pretty well. Most people have some sense of disorientation or you you feel a little weird after having a VR headset on for a while. One of the big reasons for that is because there's a mismatch of cues for virtual reality. And the biggest mismatch is between vergence cues and focus cues. So the lenses of your eyes focus in on something. Another way of seeing depth is that your eyes converge towards each other. So when something is close, your eyes are crossed a little bit. When it's farther away, your eyes uncross a little bit. In current virtual reality setups like the Oculus, Oculus Rift, these things are entirely decoupled. So what you're focusing on, especially when it's something close, isn't going to match up to where your where both of your eyes are crossing to look at it. Um, and whenever you have two cues like this that are out of sync with each other or don't give the same kind of input, you're going to 
have some conflict in your brain and it's going to be a little difficult to resolve and it's not going to give you a perfect sense if we could you know that's one problem to be solved in virtual reality is figuring out how to sync up these cues and make displays that can take advantage of this so i don't know what are your what are your thoughts about that no i think that's it's definitely a important point there with uh, thinking about the the way that the cues visually line up or don't line up how i mean how would that work to have the vergence cues and the focus cues come together yeah i i don't know the most I like can tilt the the screens or something the displays would that work if you had some oh uh, I don't know <laughs> well, uh, we'll have to, we'll have, to question. we'll have to research that a little bit more well I know that some displays are they try to use head or they try to use eye tracking so a couple recent advances that they're working on though it it doesn't seem as though they'll be perfectly implemented. So trying to use some eye tracking to so that you know exactly where your eyes are looking and you can compensate for that. You can sort of trick the focusing, the accommodation system of the eye. Well, one, yeah. one thing that can help is it just getting older. <laughs> right? You mean, you as mean, as, so as we get older, yeah, we, our ability to accommodate the focus on things that are close or focus on things that are far away. So it just doesn't matter. goes away, yeah, it just disappears. I just got my first... Uh, not bifocals. What are the what are they called? The the good bifocals, the uh, progressive lenses. Oh yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. So as your, I mean, as your actual reality begins to deteriorate, it's easier to have virtual reality. That's right. That's right. Point. Yeah. We could just remove everybody's crystalline lenses and replace them with is perfectly focusing at one at one distance, and then just always wear the virtual reality glasses. Well, I mean, there are already those neural prosthetics for restoring vision in the blind that send arrays of electrical impulses that go straight to early V1 in the brain. They've had some very limited success. Uh, some limited success. Yeah, sending signals directly to V1. I mean, basically, you can barely see some very, very broad forms, some huge letter E in one orientation versus another. Maybe like Atari 2600. Yeah, exactly. Level. Exactly. I think retinal, retinal prostheses are a major area of research. I have not really produced much so far. It's just very difficult from a biomaterials perspective. Putting this piece of, uh, of metal that's sending electricity through it on the back of your eyes is pretty damaging to, to that tissue. Yeah, it turns out the eye itself is a really... Uh good mechanism for turning light into electrical signals. It is. Yeah, it's, it's tough to beat. It's tough to beat. Thinking about the, the role of VR in this, you know, why, in what situations would it matter that it's more like super realistic? In other words, yeah. what is the benefit of immersion in this way versus just, say, for example, playing a video game or in the case of even from a clinical perspective, just imagining the situation? So yeah, the, the works clinically is just to think about it, right? Just think about the situation, approach it in your imagination, and that's the way a lot of this research has been done before. What's you know, then you could imagine presenting it on video screen, on, on a computer screen, or you know, and then what's the advantage of laddering up the level of immersion? I this is one of the first questions that I had, and I was thinking about it, like the 1850 version of this article and I was thinking was there someone who said is black and white photography ready for prime time for clinical psychology so it's just a picture I mean a picture is a step up and was amazing technology at one time seemed like it was representing reality better than anything else could and for something like you know systematic desensitization all of a sudden you have a picture of the actual thing that seems amazing and in what way is virtual reality qualitatively so different from pictures, the simplest version I could think of, but you're suggesting video games or just something on a computer screen without adding stereoscopic vision. But imagining, of course, that's the quickest way to construct the most relevant world to the patient. Yeah, visualization. I think to me it speaks a little bit to this idea of 
transfer. Hmm. So uh, another application for uh, virtual reality, the couple that we've talked about here, one is is purely clinical, which is you know this idea of systematic desensitization or or flooding to basically habituate you to any fearful experiences or thoughts or, or phobias. Another one is training, some sort of training. So we talked about the idea of flying. Uh, so flight simulators where you're getting an advantage from the fact that you're able to simulate an environment that could potentially be dangerous and get a chance to practice in that environment. And basically, though, any kind of situation where you're getting a chance to practice uh, a cognitively and now with virtual reality physically challenging environment could be it could be an application. So if you're, for example, you want to get better at playing football, being a quarterback, you could imagine using virtual reality to simulate that environment. Yeah, and, that environment. and to what to what level of immersion do you need? in order for it to transfer across and become effective in the real world. Exactly, exactly. That's, a, that's I think, a super interesting question. I mean, theoretically, it makes a lot of sense that the closer the experience is to the real-world experience, the more the transfer, more transfer there will be. But I think it, it really gets to the, you know, you have to understand a little bit about what's important for the real-world performance to know which variables will be important to simulate accurately and which ones will not be important to simulate accurately yeah absolutely i mean that's the big that's a big question um, I mean, you could imagine that if it was perfectly immersive to the point of the matrix where you're basically playing football and you know getting crushed by these huge linebackers <laughs> <laughs> but you don't actually have to get the concussions right and, and, you know, you're actually able to move around and all that kind of stuff, and it's it's perfectly realistic right up to the moment where you get destroyed. Yeah. you could That could be a huge advantage when you actually go to play football because, you know, there's only so many times you want to get crushed by a big linebacker before, you know, it actually is – the practice is no longer helpful. Let's take another example. What about public speaking? If it's something that you're terrified of and – you don't want to – if you're going to be a public speaker, you have to speak in public, and that's the end goal. How do you desensitize yourself to that? Um, I think in the article he mentions even a VR program that's designed for public speaking. What are the things that you'd want to replicate or or represent in a public speaking program? What would be relevant so that, so that you could – got a crowd in front of you maybe some positive reinforcement from the crowd, be able to handle if somebody's kind of mumbling in the crowd. What is what is it that's going to make you feel comfortable in an AI program that's going to transfer to you being able to go out there on stage and feel pretty confident in speaking in public? Yeah, I think that's it's a little difficult for me to think about what would be important. Yeah. I feel like the most important piece of it is actually knowing that you're in front of people, that there really are people there. It's just the knowledge of that and that you will, in fact, have some sort of reaction from these people who you're talking to. Right. So going in, so if that's the case, then anytime you, any situation that you know you're not really in front of a crowd of people is not going to be helpful. Right. So I think it's, I guess it's an empirical question then whether it works for, for people. I guess sometimes Again, back to the idea of visualization, one of the techniques that, you know, you're taught when you're learning to do public speaking is to visualize speaking in front of a crowd when you're practicing your, your speech or mm -hmm. when you're practicing whatever it is you're talking about. I don't know how effective that is, though. I don't know if there's, like, really a lot of research on that. I mean, that was one of the things that I took away from the paper as well which is that there's not a lot of really great, large, double-blind, mm. randomized control trials in any of these areas that we're talking about. So when you think about what is the benefit or lack thereof of virtual reality for these different clinical tools, it's clouded by the fact that the clinical tools themselves are not sufficiently well-studied. 
part of the problem is that the things that they're doing are idiosyncratic. You know, yes. One person might be afraid of spiders, but only a certain kind of spider and only in a certain type of situation. Another person might be scared of heights, but again, it could be contextual. And it could be extremely idiosyncratic, like you're scared of a particular person. Everyone has a complex psychological history, and by nature, if you're if you're creating a VR simulation, you have to create it for a mass market, and you can't personalize these things. You can't have all of the details that, if you're talking to a therapist in a private setting, you can lay out what is individual and what is personal about your case. And in a VR program, I guess one of those issues is it really it can't be individuated in that same sense to that degree. Certainly under the current funding environment, it would be very difficult to have things uh, personalized in that degree. I think that's part of the problem with the technology development in, in, on the research side is that there hasn't been funding for large enough trials also. So even when it's possible to have a large enough trial, there hasn't been enough funding to, to actually do the research. I think that's that's been a kind of a constant challenge in, in the space of, of any of these applications of technology for psychology, right, is that it's it's very difficult to find someone who's willing to fund the research at the scale that you need to do it to really prove out the point of whether mm -hmm. it works or doesn't work for a certain for a certain use case. And even really production costs for making a, a really good virtual program. So a AAA video game title costs in the, you know, $100 million or more. I'm yeah, exactly. And, you know, and this is what maybe a lot of inspiration for these things come from are, you know, look at the possibilities that video games have, but these are extremely high production value products and it's it's there's no there isn't that much money to be made in it i would suspect that's a lot of money to recover i think yeah exactly you're never going to make a hundred million dollars back on your virtual reality systematic desensitization program that's just never going to happen so i think that is just the, the reality that these things will be side effects of of the development of the technology for video games and other applications that are more entertainment-oriented, right? Well, this is where I think maybe Jeff Bezos can come in. If he has an extra $100 million and happens to be listening to this, maybe he could fund the development of a really good therapeutic program. Yeah, that would be that would be awesome. Back Just back to the idea of transfer as we think about the use of VR, how similar or different the environment is to the real world is super important as we think about the effectiveness of the transfer of the training. And it gets, it, this is important when you think about education of any kind. So you could imagine a VR educator, for example, where you're basically learning all of the things that you learn in a classroom just by putting in, just by stepping into this virtual world. And so you could actually get. So give an, exa give an example of that just to make it a little more concrete. So, for example, if you wanted to teach someone about, for example, history, you could imagine, you know, going into a history classroom, sitting down in the history classroom, and getting that experience of of hearing the lecture from the from the professor. But then you could also actually go into the historical situation. Simulations of yeah, uh, Waterloo and yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in fact, then at that point, you don't really even need the classroom at all, do you? I mean, it's not especially useful at that point. I don't know. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you might need the classroom to contextualize things because, as as you know, a lot of what history does is giving context to events that happen. So. Actually, being present at the Battle of Waterloo is probably a completely disorienting experience, and you really have no idea what the meaning of it all is. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. I think you're right about that. What you're learning is is the is the myth making that we're that we're creating, the story that we're telling about about what happened, and having some interactivity with it too, so that you can ask questions of the professor and 
work on contextualizing things. And that you can't get as much from an enhanced perceptual representation of it or enhanced virtual reality. It has to be something more of an intellectual engagement. As technology develops and as we as the machines that we're interacting with get smarter, the things that you're going to be wanting to learn actually start to blend into the interaction modes that you're having in virtual reality. When you're learning, so for example, I was thinking about this in the context of flying. So when you're flying a plane, the reason why the flight simulator works so well as a tool for training pilots is that you can actually create a, an environment that's rather similar to sitting in a cockpit in a simulator. You know, you have screens around you that sort of give you the visual input that you would be getting. Right, yeah, and pretty much all of the input that you'd be getting too, yeah. Sound, yeah, you could even, they even have the ones where the seats move, mm -hmm. you know, and shake you and stuff. So as you're getting better at playing that video game, you're actually getting better at the task itself because the task itself is so much like that video game. And as the world around us becomes more more automated, so we're, we're driving a car, for example, is more and more controlled by the machine, actually then the simulator becomes more and more like the real environment because the real environment is becoming more like the simulator. So if you think about that in the context of education, you're, the fact that you're, what you're not getting with a virtual reality simulation is, is the social interaction Maybe that doesn't matter because <laughs> the world that you need to, you know, that you need to master from a professional standpoint is more and more like that simulation and less and less like the social environment. Interesting. Well, I mean, in terms of piloting, I suppose the obvious one there is just drone piloting where you could be perfectly trained as a drone pilot because your your training would be almost identical to your actual controlling of the plane. It would be exactly identical. It would be exactly identical. And the only difference is that something is not really actually happening. And if you were told that something was actually happening, your experience of it would be identical. Yeah, and that's pretty high metacognition. Yeah. Everything everything else is the same. Yeah, yeah. So then I guess if you wanted to get that really awesome public speaking immersion you would basically need to convince the person that they were, in fact, speaking in front of public. Uh, so, okay, so how do you go about doing that? You, maybe you have, uh, I'm not trying to solve this problem, but <laughs> maybe you have, maybe you have it just sort of a random half, okay, the first time you go in front of there, there's only a 1% chance that you're going to be in front of real public, you know, virtual people on the other end anyway and 99% chance that there's no one there. And by the end, you can you can go in front of it when you know it's 100% of the time it's going to be a real public. Yeah, that seems not no. not, not helpful. <laughs> no, it's the right idea, but it seems... Well, there's something about... De I guess the issue is deception here. Yeah. Um, you but it's can't... also just like at that point, it's like you might as well just go speak to people and just do it a bunch of times, you know. Join Toastmasters or whatever. Toastmasters that exists already, so exactly. Yeah, exactly. Do it. Where I guess where it comes up more and where it would be useful is when it's really dangerous. When the situation is really dangerous, and you don't want to fuck it up, so you want the first time you go out really do it to be perfect at it already. Yeah, and a soul, I think military applications to that are pretty obvious. And so that gets back to the whole thing about why inevitably all technologies of this magnitude are always developed first by the military or by the entertainment industry. Those are the two places where these things get developed. Yeah, one is market market demands and the other is defense or just the Department of Defense that, that has almost unlimited funding. Exactly. So you're basically, your two applications of VR that are really going to be pushed are building the super soldier that was actually a call for for funding that i think i actually applied for one of those grants wait are we on to the dystopian future part of the podcast now <laughs> yeah. uh sure 
Maybe that should be a segment. That's a segment. Yeah, that's, we could just time box it. Just keep it only to like two minutes. What's the worst case scenario given what we've talked about? Right, right. Well, the other thing that I was going to say that I, I think we probably won't want to include in the show, but it has to be discussed is that the other real application of this is pornography, obviously. Why does that not have to be discussed in the show? I guess we could discuss it in the show. It's just, you know, that is where, you know, you just have to imagine that this is going to be profitable. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's probably what could drive a lot of technology forward. Yes. And then also, to the dystopian thing, what ends the human race? Pornography? Oh, no, I mean, if, if, if you're, if you're, if you're able to, like, perfectly simulate the sexual experience, you know, that is essentially arbitrary in nature with no consequence, you know, would people ever actually go out and <laughs> do the real thing? You know, why, why bother? And then, you know, then you don't have, then you don't have babies. Yeah. And I think that applies. I mean, I think it applies not, not just to pornography, but to the entire human experience. So why if you, you can, yeah, why are you interacting with other people? If you can get a simulation of a person who activates those same good feelings, but yet is just a little nicer to you. Yes, exactly. And yeah, you can simulate that social environment. And what happens to that social environment as it becomes partly experienced through the simulation and then partly usurped by the simulation? It's not the case that it's type two chaotic, right? Because type two chaotic. Yeah. So in type one chaos, it's like, you know, the system is highly interactive from a set of initial conditions that are so many complex interactions that it's difficult to predict what's going to happen in the future. Uh huh. All these random events. I guess that's probably the chaotic system that I'd be familiar with. So what's type two chaotic? But, but type one is not affected by the measurement of it. So type two chaotic system is, it is affected by the measurement. So the fact that you're seeing the, the scenario play out and then your experience is what you are trying to simulate, but your experience is tied up with the simulation itself, it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen. Hmm. Right, because as soon as you start, so to your point of the social interaction, right, so you start to interact with people who are nice to you in the interaction model, but that's based on what your culturally derived beliefs about what is what nice is. So as that as more and more of your experience is based on on the virtual world, that's going to change. I see. I see. Think pleasing or nice is from another person. Yeah, you're going to come to expect that. Exactly. And then how does that affect you could end up some, in some pretty pretty weird corners. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean there are, there is no end to the dystopian futures possible with virtual reality, I guess. No. No. But, you know, in the, on the positive side, practical applications, you know, one of the things that that we both worked on is the idea of, of cognitive training. Simulations are things that are sometimes used for different kinds of trainings, and cognitive training is one of the things that comes up in virtual reality research as well and came up in this paper. So he was talking about the context of the virtual uh, kitchen. So yeah. this is a situation where uh, for people who are suffering from cognitive impairments, they're essentially doing training in the virtual kitchen. So they're able to you know, cook meals and basically engage their cognitive systems in that way in a challenging environment that is mm-hmm. also practical mm-hmm. with the hope that this could somehow transfer to the real world, both in the context of the, the very specific near transfer of, of being better at cooking, which could be obviously practically useful. But then the hope is that it transfers beyond that as well to more generalized cognitive abilities. So what do we think the hopes are for that, for VR, for, and for those purposes? Yeah, 
That's a really interesting question. I think it may depend on the the cost for implementing some of these kinds of training programs, like because there's more potential for virtual reality than there is with something with less fidelity. So there should be it should be that you can recreate a situation that would be transferable and that could give you real world skills. It just sort of stands to reason that the more immersive it is, the more the more you can map one situation onto another situation. So the virtual kitchen with cooking, you can it seems much more reasonable that you would you would be able to transfer to actual cooking. It does. And that's why I think it's a cost issue is because these things would have to be tailored to a lot of individual kinds of interaction, a lot of a lot of situations and they'd have to have realistic kinds of worlds. So I think a kitchen seems fairly straightforward, but a lot of situations might be more complicated and get to be a little messier and a little harder to to come up with and produce in the right sort of way. Right. And I think it it also gets into this zone where the kitchen to me gets into the zone of all right, do you really need virtual reality for that? Why don't you just put them in a kitchen? Yeah. Right? I mean a kitchen could be dangerous, but if there's I mean are we talking about a situation that's supervised or unsupervised? If it's unsupervised, uh, it, it's hard for me to imagine someone who's really cognitively impaired being able to navigate the interface to be able to even plug into that kind of a, a training. And then if it's supervised, well, then just supervise them in the actual kitchen. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, this goes back to your point about the most useful kinds of applications are the ones that you can't just jump right into, but a kitchen is certainly one that you can jump right into. Yeah, so the near the near transfer then becomes questionable in terms of its utility, and the far transfer becomes questionable in terms of its whether it works or not. I mean, does it does getting better at doing a cooking task help you in other tasks in the real world? And what would those tasks be, and how would you measure that? Measurement is an interesting one. Because if you think about it from a transfer perspective, you could do some pretty interesting tasks in a virtual reality situation that would be hard to do on just like more your, you know, the kind of cognitive tasks that are computerized. They're usually just pretty direct implementations of, of what used to be a paper and pencil test. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so connecting a bunch of dots in, in a numbered order or switching between numbers and letters. Uh, trail making, yeah. Tra trail making, yeah, exactly. You know, it's a pretty basic task that is implemented on a computer. But if you want to understand what real transfer would be like, virtual reality could be an interesting environment to repetitively be able to put people in situations that and test them on their performance in a way that's hard to do in the real world because those situations just don't always come up. Okay, so here's a middle of the middle of road example. So, what about a chainsaw simulator? <laughs> yeah, oh, that's a good one. Firearms so training. It's not necessarily. I mean, it's not necessarily that you're a soldier going in and trained to kill, but it's also more than learning. It's more than learning where the refrigerator is and stuff in the kitchen. What sorts of things would you need to get right in a chainsaw simulator? Because what you don't want is someone to feel confident that they've picked up all the skills of using a chainsaw, go out, start up a chainsaw, and then find out how different it is to, to have that real experience. Yeah, that, that, the chainsaw simulator is definitely one where you need to have that haptic feedback, the, the weight of... You have to the, have the right kind of weight, yeah. yeah. And, and the right vibration, those are two big elements. Kickback, all that kind of stuff. Right kind that's of resistance from the resistance. tree, yeah. It starts to feel like that's not going to be useful at all because it's easy to imagine a, 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 you take the chainsaw, take the chain off. Yeah, there you go. Fire that that's, bad boy up. That would be a better chainsaw simulator. Yeah, exactly. We'll put like a, a rubber tooth. What are, what is, what's the, the actual saw part called? The chain. The chain. Yeah, put like a, a rubber chain on there. And just, you know, fire that thing up. 
and then yeah, be, that would be better. Yeah, because you have to build that anyway. You're, <laughs> you know, it's a little bit like yeah, you start getting into that uh, rock band world, right? Where it's like, all right, you just built right. like a guitar and like a drum drum kit. So it's like, all right, what's what's the benefit here? Yeah, you you um I think the benefit in games like that is giving people an inflated sense of confidence that they can actually produce music. I think it, yes, it is. And from a fun perspective, entertainment perspective. And that's yeah. where the challenge is at bridging the, the, the entertaining game to like something that's actually useful beyond the game. So the game itself is useful because it's fun. But I think if you want to what's cool about that is that it, it you know, making Music with a guitar or drums, keyboard, it's difficult and you know, it's challenging and there's a lot of pieces to it and it's challenging to get started. In other words, to make any sounds that are in any way appealing is, mm-hmm. is hard. It's hard to get started. It's hard to, to get that, um, to, you know, get a toehold. And then each successive step, it's difficult to find the right increment of of challenge as you increase the challenge level it's difficult to get that level right and then to the point where you can start doing it with other people is a challenge as well and so the the, simulation should be able to in a smart way take you from a very easy initial mode where you're only doing this you're doing very simple parts of it and then as your interest as your interest grows then you move toward yeah understanding how to really produce a real sound from an actual guitar exactly and then as uh, as a very patient teacher simulated teacher can can work with you to like actually interact you can really start to learn how to play music without having to annoy do all the boring stuff yeah yeah and 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 do all the boring stuff yeah i mean i think it should work right the challenge is again: is it better enough that it that it's worth it, or will it always just be better just to have a person teach you? Uh, and, and I think the challenge there again is: so there, there's a game, Rocksmith. Do you know this game, Rocksmith? Is that the one where it can listen to you playing and give yeah, you, you feedback? You plug in a real guitar, and you know you um, you feed it, your guitar directly into the into the device, PlayStation, I think it is. You know, you plug it right into the PlayStation, and it, it, you know, can basically identify the notes that you're playing and tell you, give you feedback in real time as to whether or not you're, you're hitting the right notes. And it can, and it basically, they've basically set it up so that they have different levels of difficulty of, of the tunes. So that it starts with just the most basic chords that you're playing, only certain parts that are giving you the skeleton of the of the song that make it sound like you're playing part of the song, but in a very easy way. And then they ramp that up over time in a, in a way that would be similar to a way that you would be taught how to how to learn that song if you're playing with a, you know with an instructor. Joy Tunes is one that uh, is they have for the for the keyboard the piano, mm-hmm. uh, and that one is because the piano sounds are so pure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you can instantly get a you can get a note out of the piano right away. Yeah, exactly. So that you you don't have to plug it in. You can actually just put your iPad right on the on the piano and it can hear it. And that one works really well. Well, that's a good example where technology can be a good augmentation for a teacher. Right. That you can maybe extract a little more out of lessons if you have some technology that's kind of helping you get along. Absolutely. Yeah. The rote parts of the, you know, homework, right? The parts where teacher sends you home with uh, some sheet music and tells you to play it. That is effective, but you're not getting the real time feedback. Yeah. And I would, I, I took piano lessons as a kid and I liked the actual lessons, but I never practiced. Yeah. <laughs> I, so I know exactly. Yeah. I would, I can see the potential there because I would love to be able to play great piano without without it being a chore to do that i guess and i mean just to bring this back around to vr and clinical therapy 
so initially we were asking, we were sort of addressing the question, is it always going to be most useful to have the intervention of a therapist or someone guiding things, or is it possible that VR can do most of the work for you, or most or all of the work for you, so that can, it would eliminate the need for that therapist? Right. And I, I think maybe, maybe we can maybe we can sort of wrap it up here uh, because I think it's a great place to, to sort of wrap, which is uh, the paper asks the question, is clinical virtual reality ready for prime time? And part of the question of that is, in terms of the utility, is, you know, how much of this is replacing a clinician and how much of it is augmenting what a clinician can do and how useful is it in either situation? And in terms of being able to help a clinician, I think the challenges in terms of whether this is ready for prime time right now are really related to the challenges of producing high-quality mm -hmm. content and technology for a limited audience. And I think that is the reason why the answer to this question is no. Clinical virtual reality is not ready for prime time. If it was, people would be using it all the time, everywhere. Um, and it's really just kind of like a, you know, it, it's just a niche academic topic. It's, it's certainly getting a, a lot of papers for Skip Rizzo, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of papers. Uh, and he's doing some cool demonstrations, but really not even any big clinical trials to speak of. So I, I think it's, there's some practical reasons why it's, it's not ready. Well, maybe it's something that comes on wave three of virtual reality. So if, you know, if virtual reality goes through some cycles of, you know, hype and then some reality, one of the things that he mentions in this paper, which I thought was, it certainly rang true, is that, you know, in the 90s when people are really excited about potentials of virtual reality, almost all of the academic papers were proof of concept kinds of things. So it's just you know, something like this could work given enough resources or you know, it wasn't it wasn't a thorough investigation of things. And maybe maybe that's one of your gripes with this now, too, is that it still feels a little bit like a proof of concept that, yes, technically, you know, that the technology exists to do some good. But in reality, it's not quite ready for the kind of implementation that would really realize that kind of thing. So, yeah, so maybe, I, and I tend to agree with you there. I think that's probably the case, that it's maybe still a little bit in the hype phase, but but there is steady progress, and there is there is some movement towards the kinds of things like this. And certainly if you believe in the march of technological process, uh, progress as being sort of inevitable, something like this is going to happen eventually. And, you know, just like, AI, just like you're going to get AI that improves immeasurably and, and can overtake humans in most respects eventually. But it's hard to envision exactly the path from where we are right now to what that perfect implementation would actually be. One of the things where I did think there was some, he made an interesting point here, which is the usefulness for the therapist of using virtual reality. So I had thought of it mostly in terms of what's the usefulness for a patient. So how much, you know, how, how could it improve something like systematic desensitization or depression or something like that? But as a tool for the therapist, I thought it was interesting to consider the idea that a therapist can observe you and your interactions with your virtual environment. I like so, that as well. I thought that was really pretty cool, especially if it was like a phobia situation or yes. or some sort of other dynamical situation where if they can see what you're doing when you're encountering that spider or you know standing up in front of the, the crowd speaking, then that person can potentially step in and help you a little bit. Yeah, and it gives a lot more information than just a, a talk session about what their fears are, that that an observation of that can really, uh, could be useful. So I saw some potential there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the last 
point that I wanted to make with regards to this was one of the reasons why clinical virtual reality is not ready for prime time is that a lot of what's happening in clinical psychology is human beings making very, very nuanced and difficult human decisions about how to respond to another person's suffering often. Uh, it's often about suffering or, or, or discomfort. And we don't know enough about what works and doesn't work or why it works or doesn't work. That it, it really does require uh, a trained but also empathetic, critically empathetic human being to make psychological therapies effective. And we just don't know enough about what makes someone empathetic or how someone can be empathetic or what those decisions that they're even making are to be able to put those into a machine. And I think that's way far into the future. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, that, yeah, you really have to understand some of those things before you're going to get to the point where you can suggest that, that it's going to be a useful therapy. Yep. So clinical virtual reality, not ready for prime time, but still cool and definitely some exciting prospects for the future.